have much time to look around off the main road. If they did, they might see farmers like Fred McNeil plowing his field or doing the endless things that farmers everywhere have to do. Farm comes. Written sales contracts are so powerful because we can make them say what we want. Welcome to the Farm Commons Podcast. This episode is We'll Sign for Food, and it's about sales contracts or sales agreements for your farm. We take some basic approaches to these podcasts. We want you to think about community and relationships, and we want you to think about legal risk and how to manage it. Farms are more successful when they use clear paperwork to prevent problems in a cooperative manner, and this certainly applies to sales contracts and sales agreements. So what is a sales agreement? Well, it's a contract. Imagine that you and I make an agreement. I will bring you a box of tomatoes on the first day of winter. Never mind that they won't be fresh because it'll be winter. Just go with me on this. Uh, So I will bring you a box of tomatoes on the first day of winter, and in return, you will pay me $20. We draft an agreement and sign it. This is an enforceable agreement. It looks like an agreement, and so in the eyes of the law, if it looks like it, it is. Or as Rachel Armstrong, our executive director and attorney specializing in things like farm contracts, says, If it looks like a duck, and it waddles like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. So it's going to be enforced as an agreement if it looks like an agreement. But what if I end up bringing you a box of canned tomatoes, and you say, Wait, I could have bought my own canned tomatoes. I wanted tomatoes grown on your farm. And I say, well, you didn't say that. You just said tomatoes. What happens if I bring you cherry tomatoes or really junky and undersized or bitter tasting tomatoes? What happens if you and the other party come to an irreconcilable disagreement about the original agreement? This is my friend Morgan, a contract lawyer who practices in Miami, Florida. My name is Morgan Weinstein. I am the managing attorney of the Miami, Florida office of Van Ness Law Firm. Um, I am in charge of a group of attorneys who tries cases, most of which arise under a contract. So we sue and defend uh, based upon breaches of contract. Morgan says courts will try to correct ambiguities in contracts if those are the sources of disagreement. It's likely that one side will see the terms as very simple in meaning, and the other side is going to argue that the terms are ambiguous, that they're not clear in meaning. The contract's terms will be enforced if it was validly entered into. Uh, And so the party that wants to enforce the terms and the way that they're interpreting it will go to court and say, this is the way that we're interpreting it. We think that this is the correct way to interpret it. We don't think it's ambiguous. And they'll hope that they're right. Uh, The party that says that it's ambiguous will say it's subject to these two or more meanings. If a court believes that the clause is unambiguous, then it's just going to enforce the terms in the ways that it reads it. If the court thinks that the terms are ambiguous, it could very well end up rewriting your contract. Theoretically, it should rewrite the contract in as narrow a way as possible to correct the ambiguity. Additionally, the court's going to fill in the blanks through testimony on the party's agreement or on state law that's designed to create defaults where parties haven't otherwise agreed on on a contract. If you think it's far-fetched that we might argue about the meaning of tomatoes, here's a story that I tell Uh, on our uh, land acquisition episode of the podcast, but it has even more applicable meaning here. In 1960, 
a chicken distributor sued a chicken supplier because the distributor had asked for chicken, meaning chickens suitable for frying and cooking, but the supplier instead sent along a bunch of chickens that were smaller, kind of skinnier, didn't have as much meat on them, maybe suitable for stew, but not for fried chicken. So they went to court. In its decision, uh, for that was a decision for the defendant, the circuit judge of the U.S. District Court in New York wrote the following. The issue is, what is chicken? The plaintiff says chicken means a young chicken suitable for boiling and frying. Defendant says chicken means any bird of that genus that meets contract specifications on weight and quality, including what it calls stewing chicken, and plaintiff pejoratively terms fowl. Dictionaries give both meanings, as well as some others not relevant here. To support its definition, the plaintiff sends a number of volleys over the net. The defendant essays to return them and adds a few serves of his own. So the two sides argued about the definition of chicken. The plaintiff ended up losing. The court concluded that the plaintiff should have been more specific about what they meant by chicken. So what if we never signed anything and just made an agreement with a handshake? Well, legally, a contract is an agreement, whether it's in writing and has a signature or not. It can be enforced even if the agreement is purely verbal or on a handshake. But writing down and signing a contract is a really good idea because of memory, clarity, and thoroughness. At the end of this episode, we're going to list a bunch of resources that will tell you more about sales agreements and other contractual relationships. But in the meantime, let's explore a couple of places where agreements are most common. CSA subscriptions, and contracts with stores and restaurants. Let's call this section CSAs, the good, the bad, and the ugly, even though the bad and the ugly are actually the same thing. The good is the social and community importance of CSAs and your opportunity to make money from them. Community-supported agriculture is just that. The community supports the farmer, and the farmer feeds the community. It's a business that many, many small farms can get into, even within the same community. It thrives on smallness, sustainability, sound environmental practices, and a love of local food. It even lowers your carbon footprint because you're eating stuff that was grown down the street rather than thousands of miles away. The bad and the ugly of CSAs have to do with risk. And to be honest, they don't outweigh the good. We love CSAs at Farm Commons, but there are bad or unpleasant facts about how CSAs could get ugly. This is because CSA contracts are not like normal contracts. Normal contracts, even normal sales contracts, have fixed terms. You always know what you're supposed to get in return for something. If you're running a farm in particular, and if you're running a CSA, uh, you're going to need a um, you're going to need a CSA contract, and those contracts um, should definitely be uh, done or at the very least reviewed and edited by a lawyer, because although there's not anything incredibly specific that each needs to have, these contracts, because of the way that the operation functions with uh, essentially a partnership being formed with your members or subscribers is that they're more explanatory in nature than a lot of agreements that you would enter into. So for instance, you're going to want to talk in the agreement itself about yourself, about the farm, about your staff. There's going to need to be an introduction into what it is that you're doing uh, in terms of production. You're going to want to discuss growing techniques and controls in that agreement. Uh, the 
term of the agreement, which means the length that the agreement is supposed to last in time. You're going to want to discuss share sizes and types. These are items that are not necessarily typical contract items because in a typical contract, what happens is you have a set of promises which are exchanged for one another. I promise to do X and therefore you promise to do Y. Here, you're not necessarily promising that these are going to be the growing techniques, that these are going to be the share sizes. You're telling people these already are the growing techniques. These already are the share sizes and types. We're going to maintain that. We may expand that in the future. We may contract. If any of that happens, we'll let you know. But we're telling you the parameters of our current business so that you're aware of it. And we're getting you to sign telling us that you know what we're saying, that you are, in fact, aware. Well, okay, exactly what risks are we sharing? Are we sharing in the risk that I decide to go back to school and quit farming or just plague of locusts? You would also, in one of those contracts, want to make sure that you have items regarding delivery, uh, payment, contact information. Um, so that you can have a way to contact the members and subscribers in the event of a change. And then in the CSA, uh, you would have a customer agreement that would be signed that would indeed verify that they're aware of everything that you're spelling out. If someone becomes upset because a risk materializes that they didn't expect to have to share in, they can sue the farm. I'm not saying this happens a lot. It does not happen a lot. But it does happen, and it's something that we should uh, that we should think about when we're thinking about good legal risk management for the CSA farm. And as Rachel points out, these unknowns include not just natural disasters or weather, but could even include the productivity output the farmer may or may not be able to provide. The original model behind CSA is really premised on shared risk and reward between the farmer and the eater. We're in this uh, this symbiotic relationship together. Um, the farmer has the skills to produce a product. I need that product. I'm hungry. My body needs that product. We could really, you know, we could make this work together. I can't live without you and you can't live without me. So that being the premise, why shouldn't we both share in the risks of farming? We all know farming is extremely hazardous work. You've got to depend on you know, rain and water and insects and sunshine and, you know, weather does what it does. There's there's so many different factors. So we're really in this together. That's an excellent premise. And I think it's one that many consumers really understand. From a legal perspective, I think we need to be a little bit more articulate about what we're actually talking about here. Now, there's no legal problem with sharing risk and reward. That's great. You know, there's the, the law will certainly allow this. Um, and uh, and and it would stand up in court. That's it's it's completely legitimate. But where problems develop is when we don't actually we're not speaking the same language about that shared risk. So you know when we think about the risks of farming, we think about what I just talked about. Um, you know weather, hail, unexpected frosts, plagues of grasshoppers and locusts and flea beetles and you know all of the other um, insects that can uh, can ruin our crops, uh, blight in our tomatoes, potatoes and, you know, everything. That's what we're thinking about. But what are the real risks of farming? What actually happens on a CSA to cause reduced production, reduced output? Well, honestly, a lot of times it is not necessarily plagues of locusts. It is farmers getting injured, people getting sick, things like divorce and death uh, that, that divert our attention, um, issues that, that might pop up with childcare, 
and honestly, it's it's a hard way of life. So we have we have burnout issues. We have uh, folks who have second thoughts about whether this is really the right career choice for them. So we turn again to risk management. The takeaway is strive to be clear on what those risks are. But when consumers agree to share in the risks of farming, I'm not sure that's what they're thinking about. I'm not sure that that's actually the risk they're agreeing to. Now, they can, and and perhaps they should, but the bottom line is we just need to be clear. We need to be more clear about what we are buying and selling. If I want to sell a CSA that that shares in the risk of my burnout, that's great. And there are going to be community members who agree with that principle and want to participate as well. But I should make it clear at the outset that that is what I am selling and that is the opportunity I am providing to my community. Describe the risks and rewards accurately. Properly describing the risks and reward that you are actually offering um, gives you legitimacy in court when you actually have to draw on that policy. Could you get sued if your tomatoes, uh, you know, they all have cracking and scarring and, um, you know, the melons are all unripe and the size of softballs and the potatoes are green because you didn't get out to hill them. Um, in theory, yes, you, you, there could be a legal claim that an individual could make that those products are not as advertised, that they are uh, defective. Um, there is grounds that, that a person could find to make that legal case. It's probably not likely to happen uh, that they would file a lawsuit. What is much more likely is that they will not renew, they will complain, and they will tell their friends and neighbors that this CSA is not worth the money. Nobody wants that. So these are the steps we suggest. First, think through potential issues. Second, come to consensus with your buyers. Third, draft terms and incorporate into your documents such as uh, availability sheets and invoices or a CSA agreement. And fourth, follow through, meet your terms, and improve on agreements in the future as you learn various lessons. Here is an excerpt from a local CSA agreement where I live in Laramie, Wyoming. The parts I'm not reading are the frequency of receiving shares, where to pick them up at the local food co-op, what happens if I don't pick them up, they actually get donated to a local food bank, and the farmer's commitment to organic practices, the prices, a finality clause. I'm not reading that part. I'm just going to read the stuff about shared risk, and here it is. Share produce will vary from week to week in accordance with the growing season. I can anticipate receiving, over the course of the early season, a wide variety of salad and cooking greens, such as lettuce mix, spinach, baby kale, and that list goes on. During regular season, produce such as greens, including lettuce mixes and spinach, chard, zucchini, summer squash, pickling, and that list goes on. And then it says, because SBF grows several varieties of different vegetables, I can expect to see variety in my shares. SBF cannot currently offer choice in vegetable selection. However, members may trade with each other on pickup day, supplement shares by shopping at the co-op or farmer's markets, or donate any unwanted items to the donation box provided at the pickup site by SBF. I understand that while precautions are taken to avoid pests, disease, and weather hindrances during the growing season, there is no guarantee that any of these can be completely avoided. Therefore, shares may be affected. SBF will make every possible effort 
to provide a complete and varied share of produce to every member every week. In the event that produce is affected negatively by natural elements, SBF will attempt to compensate members in future weeks with additional shares. However, I understand that the member shares the risk with the farm, and there is no guarantee that shares will be consistent weekly. In return for the good faith displayed by members in purchasing shares before the harvest, SBF will reciprocate with extra produce whenever available, as well as items such as cut flower bouquets and value-added foods as produced, brought in, or otherwise appropriately acquired. It is the goal of SBF to provide a comprehensive CSA that is useful and pleasing to members and encourages them to continue to support community agriculture. So that's the passage I wanted to read from that agreement. This is a good agreement. As Rachel points out, this kind of shared understanding allows you to expand your market because people do buy food that doesn't look perfect. More and more people get what food and ecology and community are all about. They don't need picture-perfect tomatoes. They just need to know what they're getting in advance so they can agree to it. Now, that doesn't mean you can't offer those products. Those products still need a market. Uh, maybe not the green potatoes, you know, but cracked tomatoes deserve a home too. So if what you're offering is a seconds quality CSA, you can use that to your advantage. Be upfront about this being a seconds quality CSA. You can make your pitch based on maybe a reduced price or maybe the environmental benefits of reducing waste in the food system, or um, the delicious characteristics of these seconds quality items. So, you know, admitting what you're actually providing and being honest and upfront about it, that's not a bad thing. This is, this is you and your farm, and it's what you're offering. You want the customers who want what you're selling. It is a legal risk management strategy. If folks know the tomatoes will be cracked, there's, there's a, they're not, a, not a, a whisper of a threat of legal liability. And finally, note that a new trend in CSA agreements is the use of what amounts to gift certificate purchasing. CSA partners will now often pay upfront, not necessarily buy on a regular schedule, and this could interact with some states' laws on certificates or coupons that consumers purchase in advance for use at a later time. Here's Rachel to explain it. Many farmers are finding that the traditional CSA concept of shared risk and reward in an entire growing season isn't quite as popular as it, as it once was. It's not finding the new customers that, that CSA used to attract. Folks are often looking for an experience that's a little more akin to what they get going in a grocery store, where they can pick and choose from, you know, even just a small variety of products or have some control over when they do or don't um, receive items. To accommodate this, a lot of farmers are moving towards uh, an adapted CSA model where folks are still paying up front so that farmers get that, uh, get that money at the beginning of the season when they need it. Um, they can rely on a certain amount of income, but they're managing, basically just growing more product in, uh, and, and balancing different markets so that they can still make it work for them at the end of the day. So maybe the customer is going online and picking and choosing what they want, or maybe it's a, it's a market CSA where they go to the farmer's market and you know, select a certain dollar value's worth of product each week. Really good way to take advantage of the way people are, um, people are accustomed to, to getting their food. The legal risk with that is that oftentimes what we're creating here is a gift certificate. 
when we sell a certain volume of produce ahead of time, but we don't know what that produce is or when it is going to be picked up or, you know, the more variables that are that are introduced there in terms of, of product, the more likely it is that this thing is a gift certificate, not a legal problem in and of itself. Farms sell gift certificates all the time for all kinds of reasons. The thing to keep in mind is that if your CSA legally is operating as a gift certificate program, you should be familiar with the laws that relate to gift certificates in your state. Some states prohibit the expiration of gift certificates. They might also prohibit or cap administrative fees that you can take out of the gift certificate. So maybe you, uh, maybe the farmer would like to charge a $2 inactivity fee if a customer, you know, never comes to get product. That could be restricted under state law. Or it, using the CSA concept, maybe they want this uh, $300 subscription to be used up by the end of the year. If the state prohibits the expiration of gift certificates, then that's going to be a legal problem. For the folks who are running more innovative CSAs that, uh, that allow this kind of flexibility but still do upfront payments, it can be worth doing a quick search into the gift certificate laws of your state. And guess what? Farm Commons has an advanced CSA webinar. A video tutorial, um, which has also been converted into a podcast episode called Going In-Depth with CSA Farm Law. And there we discuss a little bit more about the uh, gift certificate potential that some CSA programs have and recommend some resources for finding more about your state's laws. Okay, let's call this section David and Goliath, when small operations deal with bigger distributors. Being able to supply retail food stores and restaurants with good farm food can be beneficial to everyone. Let's say at the outset, and this is important, a whole lot of restaurants and retail stores are run by conscientious and supportive community members who won't try to jerk you around. Many of these proprietors may seem bigger than your family farm business, but they may be committed local producers. You should still apply these principles and take risk management steps, but with a lot of these vendors, you're probably not going to feel like they're trying to take advantage of you. Now, with bigger chain distributors, those bigger distributors enjoy a lot of legal and economic advantages. They have more money than small producers, and so they can hire attorneys to carefully find ways to construct their contracts. And a lot of times you might feel like you need them more than they need you. Sometimes the buyer has their own sales agreement that they will be willing to sign, especially, you know, the larger they are and the, the more there's a corporate office somewhere, you know, the more likely it is that there is a form that must be signed. These forms often don't commit the buyer to actually following through with the sale. What they do is generally cover other legal issues that are not at the top of mind of producers uh, when they're thinking about making some sales. You're going to be in situations where, it, as a small producer, you do not control an equal amount of the power or most of the power, and in fact, have a very limited role in terms of what you can and cannot negotiate. So the advice would be to know that you own, you have the ability to walk away at any time without signing a contract with them and just decide that that's not a business relationship that you want to enter into. Um, you can attempt in the beginning to negotiate certain items with contracts that you're going to be given, but 
frequently you'll find that you don't get very far with that. And part of the reason for that is that it's more cost effective for a very large entity to simply have the same contractual relationship over and over again than it is to have a relationship with a better producer. And so they will use their same contract in the same contract language and they will scale that. Nevertheless, in good contractual agreements with distributors, there are good principles that apply to both parties. Flexibility, time frame, quality, and standardization. Flexibility has to be understood on both sides because sales may change throughout the year or bugs might take a crop out. Outlining a course of action and time frame to deal with these changes would be good things to incorporate into a contract. We have this flexibility, but it's not always necessarily written, and it can be frustrating uh, if these big vendors aren't going to buy a box of kale one week. Overall season sales and the big picture are what you should look at. And you want quality and unit standardization, even though these are often the two hardest parts for both the buyer and the seller to agree on and uphold. They're trying to buy from multiple small growers, and there needs to be a standard size and quality for them to do that. If those aren't defined and enforced, it can be difficult for all the parties involved. Finally, especially in the terms of contracts with, uh, with vendors, it's helpful to know a little bit about indemnification. What's that again? Indemnification is a pretty easy concept to understand. It's definitely easier to understand than, than spell. I've gotten used to saying it too, but it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue either. <laughs> They'll have clauses like an indemnity clause or a hold harmless clause. And what those clauses will do is they will say, you know, you, the producer, agree that in the event that there is loss, you will bear responsibility for that loss. And in the event that it was you who suffered the loss, we will not bear responsibility for your loss. So these kinds of clauses can do two things. One, they can make it so that if someone who is neither you nor the party that you're entering into the contract with is harmed because of something that the vendor does, you may be liable. And two, if the vendor causes you harm, you may not be able to recover. Um, those are problems in those agreements. Um, whether the agreement is still worthwhile is ultimately up to the individual producer. Um, there are other pitfalls that occur in, can occur in these agreements, and the agreements should be reviewed. And a thoughtful analysis should be done as to whether, in light of all of the baggage that comes with these agreements, it's still a good idea for us to enter into them. Sometimes it's still worth it. Indemnification is a promise that if my actions cause you harm, I will pay you back. If you're signing one of those contracts and it does and you are indemnifying someone else, just check that your insurance policy is going to cover that indemnification. Oftentimes it requires that the uh, that the indemnification agreement be in writing. It'll only cover um, written indemnification. So, you know, in that case, you you want a written contract so you can make sure your insurance company is going to step in for you should bad things happen. Farmers should be empowered to take action on the legal situations that affect their operations. At Farm Commons, our educational resources help farmers identify issues, break them down into manageable steps, and give farmers the confidence to move forward. Go to farmcommons.org, click Resources, and you'll see what we have. And all of these resources are absolutely free. So here's what we have on contracts and sales, and this isn't even the whole list. We have the CSA Member Agreement Workbook. We have a guide, Building Legally Resilient CSA Program Workbook. We have 
building strong, legally enforceable sales agreements for production services, building strong, legally enforceable sales agreements with availability sheets and invoices. We have a guide to writing a sales agreement for farm products, and we have a farmer's guide to negotiating and drafting an agreement. And on top of that, we have a bunch of videos. Put your CSA on strong legal footing. Going in depth with CSA farm law. Sales contracts for farm produce, why and how. And sales one and sales two. Those are two separate videos. Sales one is availability, invoicing, and dispute resolution with food food buyers. And sales two is contracts for planning ahead of production. Farms are more successful when they use clear paperwork to prevent problems in a cooperative manner. Creating mindful agreements and writing them down will help build lasting and mutually beneficial relationships. Thanks for listening. We have not and will not cover everything in these podcasts, and we aren't giving legal advice. Talk to an attorney if you have specific questions about your farming situation. This material is funded in partnership with the U.S. Department of Agriculture Risk Management Agency. Music comes courtesy of Huma Huma and Jason Shaw and Audionautics Music under a Creative Commons license. The Executive Director of Farm Commons is Rachel Armstrong. Our lead research attorney is Aaron Hannum, and I'm Matt Stannard. Want to contact us? Visit farmcommons.org and click Contact.